One of the uh, other alternatives, as you say, that um, has been proposed was proposed by um, Robert Novak. I've seen him say it a few times, and maybe he's only uh, proposing it 51% jokingly. I'm not sure. You never know with Bob. Go ahead. Um, but he's gone to the refrain of saying, why not have the government truly representative once again and not, not being dictated merely by the size of the capital and having two, three, or 4,000 congressmen? Um, he keeps on harkening back to it, so I guess he's serious about it. Have you heard the argument, and what do you think about it? Uh, no, I've, I've not heard it, the argument, and I can't even imagine an argument for that. <laughs> the, uh... Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm your host, Tal Fortgen. But that wasn't my voice you heard just now in the clip that opened this episode. That was another research assistant back in 1992, whose voice probably sounded familiar because it belongs to none other than Jonah Goldberg, who now holds the Asnes Chair in Applied Liberty here at AEI and is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. And he's also the host of the very popular Remnant podcast. That voice probably sounds a little bit different than the one you're used to hearing now because it had yet to be enriched by scores of fine cigars. But after 17 and a half years, it's back at the presentation of a Bradley lecture, albeit just a podcast dedicated to it. Jonah, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to have you back. It's great to be here. So I, I'm not under the impression that term limits, which is the topic of George Will's Machiavellian moment lecture, uh, are your pet issue or an area of particular expertise necessarily. But after hearing your conversation with Dr. Will uh, upon the release of his recent book, The Conservative Sensibility, uh, you, you spoke with him on your podcast, I wanted to bring you on, and this has been a long time coming, to uh, reflect on this very lecture that ended up launching a thousand columns and G-files. <laughs> and uh, Could you share with our listeners how that all happened? Sure. Um, so, where to begin? Um, there's a backstory to this backstory of my backstory, which is that um, George came and spoke at my college and when I was in junior or senior year, and I was one of the people invited to the president's house to, to meet him, and I think in part because I was the conservative guy, and um, we were having a very pleasant conversation because uh, we had there were friends of my family that he knew and we were talking about that and then it turned to New York and got to remember this was 90, 91, somewhere around there when New York was in really bad shape. And I said something along the lines of, yeah, my friends and I, sometimes we still walk through Central Park at night. I know it's crazy or something like that. And he said something, I don't want to be uncharitable to George, but uh, he said something along the lines of, well, then you're an idiot. And walked away. <laughs> and um, Champion of individual responsibility. That's right. And so that was sort of in the back of my head when, and I, I always admired George Will. I still admire George Will. George Will is great. Um, but when he came to AEI and I was a young larval scholar, not research assistant guy here, um, uh, I was, I, it was this offhand comment by Bob Novak about expanding the house I thought was a really interesting idea. And I asked George about it in that Q, in the Q&A section at the Bradley Lecture. And I went to all the Bradley Lectures I could for about my first five years here at AEI. Um, it was a big deal for me back then. AEI, when I got out of college, was really sort of my grad school. And, um, and the Bradley Lectures were a big deal every month. And you were always excited to see who was going to be on the list. 
and um, and when I asked George about it, he was um, he was dismissive, and uh, you combine that with my past experience with George, and I was full of youthful indignation bordering on rage, and uh, I was determined to prove that this was a brilliant idea that expanding the House of Representatives was not only wise policy, but consistent with the original intent of our founders and much better than this shabby idea of term limits. And I pounded away on my computer at home at night. I worked on this thing and I got, it got very long and I trimmed it down. I would show it to my dad. He would trim it back down, blah, 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 blah. And I ended up, this is back in the day, I understand that this is, this might as well have been bare skins and stone knives to you, but this was in the day where you submitted stuff to places like the Wall Street Journal by um, mail or by fax machine. And, um, Sorry, you're going to have to define your term. <laughs> not, not email, mail. Um, the, the, the Pony Express would come around the office once a day and you put it in his leather satchel and he would ride his horse to, uh, uh, to New York. And, um, and I kind of forgot about it. And then I get a call from, and it kills me that I can't remember if it was Amity Schles or Melanie Kirkpatrick, but it was one of the famous female editors at the time of the journal. And she said, so I'm looking at this thing and I like it don't know what to do with it. Do you mind if we hold on to it for a while? And it's, I mean, being, writing for the Wall Street Journal today is still a really big deal. It was a huge deal back then, particularly for a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, whatever I was, kid. And it was absolutely, hold on to it. Take your time, whatever. And I didn't hear anything again for a very long time, or it felt like a long time. And then they ended up using it the day after the 1992 presidential election. It was the top of the page, I believe, was an op-ed by Newt Gingrich, then one by Bill Bennett, and then one by Jonah Goldberg, a research assistant at the American Enterprise Institute. I might have gotten the top two order backwards, but I was so jazzed. It was in some ways sort of a bad market signal because I now concluded that it's just really easy to get your stuff published, including at the Wall Street Journal. First try, get a hole in one as far as I was concerned. But I wrote this piece that we should expand the House of Representatives to 7,000 people. Um, and it worked. And they liked it. And ever since then, I, when I talk to journalism students, one of the, or young people who want to do what I do, um, one of the things I always tell them is you either have to you know, there are only two things that actually get you published. One is breaking new information. And it doesn't have to be, you know, straight reporting, but new insight or new revelations of some kind, or um, something weird that nobody else is doing, right? And so, um, you know, hit where they ain't. And that was the lesson I took from that for a very long time was when everybody else is writing about X, you write about Y, write about something that, you're not giving editors an immediate excuse to reject because if it's time sensitive, so time sensitive or giving them an immediate excuse to reject because you're a nobody and no one cares about your opinion on NAFTA if you're a 21 year old or 22 year old. But if you can come up with something that nobody else has thought of or read, um, that gives you a foot in the door. That is an interesting commentary on the <laughs> world of uh 
conservative intellectual life for a few reasons. But before we get into those, I, I do want to say that, that you, Jonah, not just a powerful man, but a humble man, <laughs> find it hard to believe. But there are actually a generation of young conservatives who look at you much the same way. Uh, and I know, speaking for myself at least, and I'm going to break the fourth wall here as the host of this podcast, but that's my prerogative, uh, that reading liberal fascism was actually a, a rather formative uh, experience for me. I was a young man, and uh, it, was, it had a provocative title, obviously, and a lot of people didn't read past that, but I had yeah. the decency to. Um, and I, I found that and tyranny of cliches, which it is, it is truly criminally underrated. So <laughs> well, thank you very uh, much. If, I if you would bless me with a dismissive answer of any questions that I have in my youthful naivete, then uh, maybe that will launch a career. It uh, doesn't have to be a formal blessing. but Okay. I, 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 will, I will endeavor to be more curt and dismissive of your ideas in the future. <laughs> Excellent. So, so let's get to it then. Uh, the hit it where they ain't philosophy. Uh -huh. I, I actually want to dwell on that a little bit because there's something that strikes me as distinctly not Burkean about that kind of thinking. And uh -huh. it obviously depends on how seriously you're trying to advance a particular philosophy. And a lot of people write op-eds and, and think pieces saying, look, I, I don't want to necessarily advance this policy right now. It's a little bit out of left field. It's unorthodox. It's unconventional. But it'll either shift the window towards, right, the Overton window of, of acceptable or reasonable topics towards things that I am actually interested in talking about, or I just want to see, I just want to test the waters. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it were to be implemented, if, if someone were to read your Wall Street Journal op-ed that day and say, you know what, we should expand the house, and it just caught fire and, and people listened, that would probably result in some very radical and non-incremental change. Uh, sure. What do you make of that? All right, so... Uh... First of all, the chances that I was going to launch a prairie fire, a very specific political reform with that op-ed, were very low. A humble man. Yes. And um, uh, moreover, one of the things I was trying to do um, is um, just point out something interesting that was forgotten, right? You don't have to buy the entire argument about expanding the House of Representatives, though I am on the side of expanding the House of Representatives. And, um, you know, the idea that basically, I mean, this is a bit glib, but basically that because the fire marshal said so in 1920-something, we have to keep this number static is kind of nuts. Um, but, you know, just simply pointing out that the, the ratio of voters to representatives was a really important issue to the founders. They took it much more seriously than we take it today. And pointing out that at the Constitutional Convention, the only time that George Washington ever spoke up on a, mat on a, on a matter of substance was on this issue because the, I think the founders wanted something like the founder, the, the, the convention had settled on like 40,000 people per congressional district. And he said, that's, that's just way too big. The representatives aren't going to be able to know their own people, their own constituents. Um, you got to lower it. So they lowered it to like 30,000 on his say-so. That's an interesting thing, even if you think, okay, well, we can't expand the House of Representatives. But at least keeping in mind, oh, my gosh, that is interesting that the House is losing some of that, na that, subs that, that the nature that it was intended to have. When I mentioned this morning that I was going to be 
talking about this very topic with you uh, later in the day. I, uh, a certain AEI uh, important person who uh, I won't <laughs> embarrass uh, said, the good news is if we do expand the house, the architecture of the new building will be fantastic. <laughs> and this, that's now official uh, federal government policy, I, I, I believe. Um, but I think this debate and, and your your point about the founding is, is well taken and uh-huh. definitely returns the discussion to a an originalist uh, footing. Mm-hmm. But it gets to a, a fundamental dichotomy that we've seen run through, especially the conservative movement over the last 75 or so years, which is, do we want more representative democracy? Do we want to be governed by the people? Mm-hmm. Or do we want an elite, lowercase r, Republican class giving us uh, the the Burkean agents' uh-huh. wisdom and filter? Uh, and and I, I always come back to Bill Buckley's quip that he would rather be governed by the first however many names in the Boston phone book than by the uh, faculty of Harvard University. And I think mm-hmm. that is more a comment on... Uh, his view of academia mm-hmm. than it is about uh, his view about democracy. But the point is that there is a there is meant to be in the United States, uh, the founders agreed on this, a kind of Republican elite uh, who understands what it takes to uphold self-government uh, in this very precarious uh, structure that we've set up. Uh, but when it is convenient for for us as conservatives and many others, to point to democracy as the great legitimizing force of government authority, uh, we we do tend to appeal to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does this proposal fit into to that uh, tension that okay. runs through conservative thought? So, um, first of all, there is nothing wrong with tension in conservative uh, having tension in your thought. Right. Um, one of the great things about I've argued in the past, it may be in a bit in abeyance these days, but one of the great strengths of conservatism over the last 50, 75 years is the fact that conservative, at least let's say the intellectual tradition of conservatives, were aware of these tensions. And we would argue about our dogma. We would argue about where the trade-offs lie between liberty and order, freedom and virtue, and all these kinds of things. And that tension leads to more realistic thinking, it also leads you to be aware of what you might be losing when you're gaining something else. And so I, I, it does not bother me that there's a tension. I think thought that doesn't have tensions within it is often two-dimensional and simplistic. That said, um, how to answer this? I think, first of all, the I would say one of the greatest political tutorials or bits of political rhetoric in the last 10 years or so was uh, Senator Ben Sass's opening comments in the Kavanaugh hearings where he, remember this was before all the allegations and all that stuff came in, where Senator Sass pointed out something that I think a lot of people have forgotten, and it's a big point in in our friend and colleague Yuval Levin's work, is that Congress is where politics is supposed to happen. 
And it is where different interests, constituencies, um, geographical, uh, economic, class, race, all of those things, that is the arena in which the forces of the, 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 the competing forces within our democracy are supposed to hash stuff out. And when and and I mean specifically the lower house is where it's really supposed to happen, um, and that's where people are supposed to fight and argue, and that the American people are supposed to see it happening there, so it doesn't happen at their dinner tables, and that function of Congress writ large, where the the contending forces of our politics actually hammer out their disagreements and come to compromises when that is atrophied and because it is atrophied politics is spilled out into other institutions it is ill-suited to be in and so part of my thinking because i'm still in favor of expanding the house of representatives for wanting to do that is maybe if your typical congressman what i mean i mean representative if your typical representative didn't represent more people than were um, found in most of the 13 colony states um, at our founding. You know, I mean, like, you know, I think the typical congressional district, I haven't looked at the number in a while, but it's like 700,000 people now, 650, 700,000 people. I'm not going to correct you. Yeah, and so that's a huge number of people. And the power of incumbency, the, the changing nature of how primaries work, you have congressmen who basically... Um, can get elected almost for life, and they serve essentially as little mini senators rather than actually being a little more rough at the edges, bringing their politics from their districts with them. And if you expanded the House of Representatives so it was less prestigious and less permanent to be a member of Congress and that you were at a much closer tie to the constituents back home, Maybe we would see more politics happening where it's supposed to happen instead of every place else. I, I'm torn in thinking about that, especially because you brought up uh, Yuval's new book, uh -huh. uh, in which he argues quite persuasively that representatives in Congress, like many other prominent figures uh, in America today, are using their institu institution as a platform mm -hmm. rather than a mold uh, to shape them. Now, I can see... Uh, arguments in both directions here, but I'm inclined to say that expanding the size of the House of Representatives will actually encourage more performers to jump into the fray. And there are more people who thirst for a spot on uh, Sunday morning TV uh, who will see their opportunity to represent, I don't know, the suburbs of New York City uh, as, as an opportunity to show that they have good opinions and that they're virtuous and and that is sort of the highest good. And, and something that uh, George Will talks about in this lecture is that young people are being groomed to see uh, being in Congress as a as a, a great end, a great telos for themselves. Uh, do you think that that we run the risk of exacerbating the problem of performance in, in public life? It's a risk, but, I, you know, I mean, and, and George in his lecture and in his book about term limits, and actually in his latest book as well, he acknowledges that there are risks to his proposed reforms as well. It's just that your 
part of the act of statesmanship is picking least bad options often. I don't know that if all of a sudden we had 7,000 House members, that being a House member would be all of that great a ticket to getting on Morning Joe anymore. Oh, that's a good point. It might diminish the prestige uh, that's what of a given seat. I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to increase the prestige of the institution while decreasing the prestige of being a member of it. And um, it seems to me that you could, um, you could see, first of all, that the people who would actually gain power in that size of a body um, would be the people interested in actually getting things done. And, um, and most of the complaints I hear about, you know, doing this boil down to, well, you know, it's just too big and too unwieldy. Well, first of all, I think New Hampshire's legislature is like 400 people. Yeah, everyone right? and their cousin is. Uh, yeah, and so it, people take turns doing it. It's like a little civic duty thing. It's kind of cool. You talk to people at Christmas parties about what you're doing, and then you step down and you leave. And... I don't seem doesn't seem to me that that's a less healthy way of doing things, um, but I I'm also open to things like you know jungle primaries and all sorts of other things that would reform all of this. But um, I my fundamental belief is is still whatever we can do to make Congress actually the arena in which politics is actually conducted again, I'm in favor of, and I'm, I'm worth, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give this a try. We're going to get back to that uh -huh. in just a few minutes, but for now, we'll send our listeners to George Will's June 1992 lecture, The Machiavellian Moment and Term Limits. Don't go anywhere. Jonah and I will be right back. The two major reasons for people who are favored term limits are the opposite of mine. One is that they want to punish Congress. I want to restore and celebrate Congress and make it, as I think it should be, central in American governance, as it is in this city and as it is in the first of the articles of the Constitution. And the other is that most people want term limits to make, to close the distance between the public and their representatives. I want to widen the distance, the emotional and intellectual distance between the public and their representatives, and I think term limits are a way to do that, but I'll get to that in a minute. The beginning, I, I think, of my epiphany was, I mentioned Bob a moment ago, I'll do it again, uh, the Bork confirmation hearing. One of the questions that occurred to me watching Biden and Metzenbaum and those people was, would they behave this badly in this way? if they were not career legislators, if they were not responding to constituencies and arguments that are, were peculiar to their desire to remain what they were forever. The next step on my progress toward truth and reason on this subject was the passage in California of Proposition 140, limiting California uh, state legislators. That refuted one of the arguments I had made against term limits, which was that if you had term limits and had rookies in office, the lobbyists and interest would run all over them. The fight against Proposition 140 was led in full fury by the lobbyists of Sacramento who knew what they had going for them in a system of career legislation. Uh, the third uh, station of my cross, as it were, on this journey was connecting in my mind, and I was a slow learner but an emphatic learner, the significance of deficit spending and career legislation. Career legislation depends upon the current ethic of deficit spending, which is that there is no ethic to it, that uh, it's perfectly legitimate at any time uh, to any degree. Fourth, one day I heard myself saying, 
in, in, in response to someone who favored term limits that if we didn't have seasoned professionals in government, we would not have the good government we have today. <laughs> and uh, backward reeled my mind to the 1988 Baltimore Orioles, which uh, I never talk long without talking about baseball, so I might as well tell you that this was part of my reasoning. In 1988, the Orioles, on whose board of directors I sit, were a lot like Congress. They were old, expensive, and incompetent. And they lost their first 21 games in a row and went on to lose 107 games. Uh, that winter, we on the Orioles board said, hey, we can lose 107 games with cheap rookies. Finally, and, and this here I get to the heart of the matter. Uh, uh, the subject of midnight basketball. My final conversion occurred one morning in Denver, where I was for reasons I've forgotten, and I opened up the Rocky Mountain News, and there was a story saying that Patricia Schroeder had won a federal grant for midnight basketball. Midnight basketball, for those of you who don't know, was really started here in suburban Maryland, but has flowered into a quite famous success in Chicago. Uh, it's out in various places in the worst neighborhoods of Chicago, the private sector funds a league of basketball teams that play at midnight to get at-risk young men off the street and doing things that are legal. And it was, I wrote a column about it. It's a wonderful thing. Lots of people have written about it. And Patricia Schroeder saw it, agreed with me that it was a good idea, made the career legislator's next step, which is every good idea should be a federal program, and passed it. Now, as this happened, I was reading at the time a new biography of Henry Clay, and it just got to the part where Henry Clay fights his way over corduroy roads and swamps and through Indians to get to Washington in 1806, where he finds Pennsylvania Avenue impassable in the rain, and Congress at that moment is trying to pass a national roads bill. And President Jefferson reluctantly signs it and says, but I recommend that you amend the Constitution to authorize this nonsense. Otherwise, ere long, you will be subsidizing basketball at midnight in Denver. Words to that effect. He didn't actually <laughs> say that. His point was that we are a government, said Jefferson, of limited, delegated, and enumerated powers. And no one enumerated the power to build national roads. Well, we all know the history of that argument and who won it. But it does seem to me that when you take legislative careerism in the context of the utter overthrow of the doctrine of enumerated powers, you get what we have indeed got, which is unlimited and irrational government. My aim is to restore Congress's stature, to cut the presidency down to size, and by making Congress less risk-averse, to drive the courts back to where they belong at the margin of American civic life. We had, as you may know, at one point in this country, term limits for national legislators. Under the Articles of Confederation, you were limited to three consecutive years in the legislature. And Samuel Osgood gets a minor note in our, our Hall of Fame of term limits because he, in 1784, was chucked out by a committee that was appointed to see who had been tarrying beyond their appointed terms. They found that he had been tarrying and sent him home. Uh, the convention itself, of course, did not include term limits. They were suggested, briefly debated, but not really even debated and sort of cast aside, in part, I think, because, and I'm not being uh, uh, light about this, it seemed to no one that 
there'd be a serious problem of people wanting to spend a lot of time in Washington as it existed then. Washington, as Clay experienced it, as I say, Pennsylvania Avenue, impassable a good bit of the time. Washington, as Lincoln knew it. When Lincoln was in the White House, pigs rooted in Pennsylvania Avenue and the streets that radiated off from it. And the, there was a fever swamp full of dead cats and other putrescence behind the White House. It was not a place where people wanted to stay. In fact, Congress was one stop for many years, certainly in the Jeffersonian era and much of the uh, first half of the 19th century, one stop in an endless game of musical chairs. We did have career politicians, but they would come from some office to Congress and would go back to what we today consider lower offices, but people of Virginia didn't always consider it a lower office going back to the Virginia state legislature. Then, of course, came the Civil War and the Gilded Age, and nothing's been the same since. The interventionist state really invented by Republicans uh, through the subsidizing of the railroads and much else, made congressional life worth living for people who wanted to wield power. So you began to get these career legislators who, by 1910, staged the great uh, revolt of 1910 against the Speaker of the House who had capricious power over these people who wanted to be uh, masters of their own fate in their careers in Congress. Careerism furthermore suited the temper of the turn of the century. It was a time when modernity was thought well of. Expertise, specialization, and science were considered the hallmarks of modernity. Of course, it was only 12 years after the turn of the century that we elected a political scientist president of the United States. The incumbent re-election rate has risen throughout this century until in the late 80s and 1990s, it has surpassed uh, the 90 percentiles. In modern times, there have only been two years 1938 after the court packing uh, uproar about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and 1948 when Harry Truman ran against the do-nothing 80th Congress. Those are the only two years in modern times that the re-election rate for incumbents has dipped below 80%. It dipped all the way to 79% in those years. Since 1948, there have been 21 elections. In those 21 elections, in only four has the incumbent's re-election rate gone below 90%. In 1958, during the uh, third election during the Eisenhower years and the trough of a recession, in 1964 in the Goldwater debacle, 1966 the correction from the Goldwater debacle, in 1974 the post-Watergate. Even in those four years, the lowest incumbent's re-election rate was 86%. Now, this year, some people say, is proof that we don't need term limits because so many people are leaving. And it is the true, if, true that if we could count on having every two years or so a concatenation of scandals and redistricting and generalized disgust with bad government and a law permitting people to retire and privatize their campaign war chests. Now, granted, Americans always are, at best, ambivalent about their government for lots of reasons. Two of which are, it seems to me, that Americans had a founding presided over by genuine statesmen and heroes, a founding era that has been enveloped not unreasonably in a kind of roseate glow. It's a golden age, people think, and hence a nation that has a golden age at its outset is poised for perpetual disillusion, and we are disillusioned perpetually. Furthermore, it is, and I'll recur to this in a moment, it is woven into the very fabric of our American souls that there's a kind of hostility toward government. It is congenital, literally. It comes from our birth. 
comes from the fact that we owe much to John Locke, who said basically that government is a nuisance, but necessary to cope with inconveniences in the state of nature. And second, we have a problem in our democracy because to seek election in a democracy is to seek elevation while simultaneously saying you're not special. And we have never quite figured out how to do this without uh, coming to think badly of the people who, in fact, we elevate. But something has radically changed. On May 12, 1779, when the American forces surrendered to the British at the Siege of Charleston, the British at first allowed the American officers to keep their swords. But they were so enraged and disgusted by a war cry that went up, a rallying political cry that went up from these officers, that they made them surrender their swords. After all, the cry was, long live Congress. Now, it strikes me as interesting that we've not recently had trouble with people being unable to contain their, their celebration of Congress. What they want to do is change it. And I think term limits are a natural way, a Republican remedy, as it were, for the ailments uh, natural to Republicanism. To begin to advocate term limits, you have to deal with the question of are they anti-democratic? And they are if but only if you assume that anything is anti-democratic that circumscribes and limits political choice. In which case, of course, the Bill of Rights, the 200th birthday of which we just celebrated, is anti-democratic because what it does is protect us from, say, allowing Congress, Congress shall not, make laws abridging freedom of speech. That was done because it was thought to perfect democracy, to protect political expression. The First Amendment, that is, is not, I think, inimical to democracy. It is a perfection of it. But the real question about whether term limits ought to be put in the Constitution, and I should say parenthetically that I think this is a Constitution-level question, that those advocates of term limits who are for doing this by statute are caught in the, the, the cleft stick of their own logic. Because if term limits as are important as most supporters say they are, and I believe they are, then it is a regime level question. We are talking about fundamental values and how the republic ought to be constituted. And that gets us to the heart of the case. What we want to do is in the words of Hamilton in Federalist 68. He said, we want a government, you judge a government, he said, by its aptitude and tendency, moderate 18th century language, its aptitude and tendency to produce good administration. We want to know if term limits will conduce to the aptitude and tendency to have a virtuous government, virtue understood as the 18th century did as calm, reasonable, civil, detached, and long-headed. Well, the Founding Fathers knew that virtue was not natural. It did not spring up like the grass on the prairie. It was something that was nurtured by artifice and could indeed be nurtured by the workings of our institutions. Federalist 10, one of the two, I guess, fundamental documents of the, our constitutional exegesis, the other being Federalist 51, both by Madison. Federalist 10, Madison speaks of the need of representative institutions to refine and enlarge the public views and add reason to the willfulness of the public. That is, a constitution is supposed to encourage certain kinds of behavior, and by encouraging certain kinds of behavior to shape character. I believe the constitution sets out to shape character, and here 
I'm recanting something else. That is, I wrote a book called Statecraft to Soulcraft, faulting the Founding Fathers for, for being indifferent to the nurturing of virtue. I think I was wrong. I think the Constitution intended to establish deliberative democracy, and that deliberation, as done in public by Congress, was supposed to be improving to the soul of the country. It is to reestablish deliberation in government that term limits uh, are essential. We all know that the least helpful advice that anyone can give us when we have a problem is when they say, well, do what you want. Because all the great questions in life, as in politics, are what ought we to want? Are we wanting the things we should want? That is what a republic tries to do in public and in discussion. And hence it was in Federalist 51 that Madison said, you must first, first he said, you must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. Now some people say, well look, that's all very well, that was a problem in the 18th century, but now we have the mass media. And the mass media obviate this function of representative institutions because the mass media instantly and accurately transmits public opinion to those who are supposed to be responsive thereto. So two problems with that. One is, is it really opinion that we are measuring through public opinion polls and all the rest? And is it the opinion of a public in any meaningful sense? Public opinion to be real settled opinion, a judgment, and to be more than uh, the opinion of disparate individuals, but people thinking as a public in some sense, must be more than a one-way flow of impulses and feelings and reactions of the sort that we get from men on the street interviews or poll takers on our stoops. Congress deliberating is doing public pedagogy. It's doing it right. That is, Congress should be teaching the public through its reasoning about things, but also should be teaching itself as it argues and discusses and reasons. The fundamental principle of a republic is the principle of representation, and the principle of representation is that the people do not decide issues, they decide who will decide. Now this obviously poses a problem discussed famously on October 13, 1774 in the city of Bristol when Edmund Burke, having just been elected, went before the electors of Bristol and said, thank you, but before leaving you, I want to tell you something. And by the time he finished talking, they were doubtless saying, now he tells us. Because what Burke said was, is that my, another fellow elected at the time had said he believed firmly in the principle of instruction. That is, that uh, the constituency could dictate how he should vote on particular issues. Burke said he did not believe in instruction. He rejected it. He said a representative in Parliament owes his constituents not just his industry but his judgment because Parliament, he said, is a deliberative assembly. Something has happened in our republic. It has to do, as I say, with the abandonment of the doctrine of enumerated powers, the emergence of the modern state with all its aptitudes for subsidizing and regulating public life all the opportunities it thereby poses for career legislators to dominate the, the minds of their districts and by their favors. And as we have become more uh, served by solicitous government, we have been more convinced that the government is in decay. Now, decay brings us to a second issue. The first reason, as I've summarized it for favoring term limits, is a, an attempt to make a deliberative pos uh, democracy possible. Not certain, no certainties in this life, but make it possible. Improve the aptitude and tendency of the government for deliberative democracy. There is another theme 
largely obscured and layered over in American history, but now being uncovered by the archaeological work of intellectual historians of the founding era. And that is that we have not been sufficiently true to, as term limits would, I think, be true to, the spirit of classical republicanism, which is a strand in the American founding. The American founders were worried, as every serious political thinker since Plato has been, about decay, about not just the problem of founding a good government, but of preserving it from cycles of decay and then possible regeneration take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. All political philosophers have worried that virtue, good government, was a fragile and easily lost thing. It certainly must have been on the mind of the founding era, because in 1776, among the documents published was another volume of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, expressing Europe's constant fascination with decay as it struck down a great empire. This concern with decay, with the problem of maintaining virtue in a republic, is what links Machiavelli, through Machiavelli, the Aristotle and the moderns. That is what they shared, one of their great anxieties. And it's through Machiavelli that the pedigree of classical republicanism goes back to the ancients, back to Aristotle. Classical republicanism was a theme among our founders, and it stressed a somewhat different picture of man, that man is emphatically social, he is social in the sense that participation in civic life is essential to his happiness and his fulfillment and his virtues. That man is not tentatively and limitedly social, but again requires active participation in his government. By the time this idea appeared with some vigor in the 18th century, it had become in England part of the argument between the court and the country. Those who saw the the court as a sink of iniquity in the distant capital of London, and the country gentry as the, uh, the upholders of classical virtues of, of diffidence and, uh, and uh, judiciousness, prudence, and disinterestedness. In America, something like that erupted in the, what was the founding, of course, of our party system in the argument between Jefferson and Hamilton. Jefferson emphatically, more clearly than anyone else, had a sociology of virtue. Keep your cities in Europe, divide the country into wards, have a sturdy rural yeomanry, and you will, uh, if, but only if you do that, will democracy be possible. I think Hamilton actually had a rival sociology of virtue, that money power would open an oligarchic slave-holding South and would produce its own virtues. You really had two sociologies of virtue arguing with one another, but both of them were taking virtue terribly seriously and were taking seriously the need for public policy to supplement, take notice of, and strengthen the particular sociologies of the virtues they want. In both of these, uh, these men were, uh, at that Machiavellian moment, trying to take seriously providing for an aptitude and tendency in the government to produce good government and good people. And one of, I think, the important and urgent achievements that term limits will bring about is to put the presidency back in human scale. It is no accident, comrade, as they used to say on the other side, it is no accident that the interest in term limits and the willingness to take ris risks with kind of regime level questions has bubbled up since 1989, since the official and visible end of the Cold War. From 
Harry Truman, through the first 250-some days of George Bush's presidency, until that is November 9th, 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, for those 40-some years, the presidency was on a brightly lit, highly dramatic stage. Finger poised over the button, the military aid with the nuclear codes following him around, a great sense of drama, of a hair-trigger world on its tiptoes at all times. Well, that has changed, and with it, some of the, what I'll call, president centrism. The idea that the president should be a permanent opinion-shaping presence in American life was utterly alien to the founders and to the first 24 or so presidents. It is very interesting, uh, and I hear I'm drawing upon a marvelous book by Jeffrey Tullis of the uh, University of Texas at Austin called The Rhetorical Presidency, uh, that in the pre-20th century presidency, presidents gave very few speeches. Those speeches they gave were almost entirely patriotic orations. The average speech per year of George Washington were three, John Adams one, the loquacious Jefferson five, and Madison, who had a war going, and you might have thought wanted to rally the people, gave none. Didn't give speeches. Abraham Lincoln, en route to, uh, from Springfield to, wa to Washington to take up his duties with the clouds of disunion lowering over the country, stopped all along the way. And at most places, he'd come out and say, here I am. And he'd see and be seen, as they said at the time. And Lincoln would say, I'm on the way to Washington, but I'm going to remain silent on the great issues of the day. It is right that I should. And everyone applauded. They agreed with that. <laughs> you may recall that he gave a speech at the dedication of a cemetery at Gettysburg, and he was by no means the central speaker there. Another guy talked two hours. He talked about two hours, two minutes and 50 seconds. His successor, Andrew uh, Johnson, was impeached. And one of the articles of impeachment was that he had used improper rhetoric and out campaigning explicitly and politically for his reconstruction policies. Well, he made this exception and went out campaigning for the Hepburn Act. But it was Woodrow Wilson who came along and supplied a theory that was to make Roosevelt's behavior not aberrant but normal. His theory was fairly clear. As Harvey Mansfield says, Woodrow Wilson was the first American president to criticize the founding fathers. We've had political movements do that. The progressive did it, and then the New Deal. They said the founding fathers' basic intention was all well enough back then, but it wasn't suited to the nation's new situation. Basically, they said that the founders had this rather simple catechism, uh, what is the principal evil to which politics is prey, tyranny, to what form of tyranny is democracy prey, tyranny of the majority, solution have lots of a saving multiplicity of factions, a kind of swirling, divided government that will be inefficient and tentative and maybe unable to act at times, but it will prevent tyranny, that being the first object of government. That's the, the, the gloss that the progressives and the New Deal and Wilson to some extent put on it. Wilson came along and said, actually, they were wrong from the start because they did not understand the central duty of the president, which is to be the inspirator of the country to have visions, to use a word that, that we use nowadays, and he used constantly. He was always having visions and sharing them with us. <laughs> he had a phrase for this, a less sort of charged word. He said it was interpretation. The duty of the president is to interpret what is in the hearts of the masses, whether or not they know it. 
and he he was uh, this obviously developed very quickly a kind of plebiscitory president and anything plebiscitory in our government began to subvert the very structure of indirectness that the founders thought was essential to a deliberative form of government that again that the people don't decide things they decide who will decide and any plebiscitory element in our system begins to work against a circumscribed public sphere because what you begin to develop is a kind of watery Caesarism. If we're going to have a system where the president isn't everything, then the good thing is we won't have a country that is hostage to the attributes of a president. We have now built up in the Woodrow Wilson scheme of things an office that depends upon the occupant having certain attributes that are, after all, rare. It's a curious fact, but an a important one, that the British prime minister can do different things, can do what he or she wants, but has the power to do pretty much what he or she wants, no matter who or she, he or she is. Attlee, Harold Wilson, Margaret Thatcher have disciplined parties, a three-line whip, and a unified government. They can do what they please. It doesn't depend on Attlee's God knows eloquence or Mrs. Thatcher's charm. They can be very potent people. Not so in the United States. Consider the difference between the office of the presidency, the power of the presidency, in the summer of 1979 under Jimmy Carter and the summer of 1981 under Ronald Reagan. Different power of the office. Because the office, as it has come to be uh, treated in the post-Wilsonian scheme of thing, uh, is an office dependent on the possessor of it, possessing the ability to supply our desire for visions and to have a rhetorical gift to inspirit us and to make soothing or uplifting or ennobling pronouncements after great events, such as the Challenger episode or the Los Angeles riots, whatever. It is an extremely demanding kind of office, as we've now defined it, and hence we are almost constantly going to be disappointed by the fact that there's no kind of alchemy of elections that produces gold from the lead of our normal political leaders. I suggest a restoration of the vigor of Congress. The old problem, remember, was we thought the problem of politics was that there would be a conflict between the ruler and the rule, the government and the people governed. And the assumption thought of in the 19th century by some people was that popular sovereignty would solve all that if the people and the government were somehow the same thing. Well, now we know better. We know that in the modern state run by career legislators, the sovereign people become part of the problem. Some people say, and I have to recur to this now, that, that term limits is a, is a transparently conservative plot, A, to punish Democrats, and B, to get conservative objectives such as lowered government spending. It is the case that careerism does feed the culture of spending on Capitol Hill. But it is not clear to me that under term limits you would have lower spending. Indeed, I would argue emphatically that if you're ever going to have a higher level of public spending, and there are good conservatives who say we need that, that if you're ever going to have a higher level of public spending, you have to have term limits because the public's strongest, indeed its only passion today, is taxophobia. And taxophobia is a statement of the conviction that the existing political class cannot be allowed to exercise discretion with people's funds because they spend not according to any rational understanding of the public good, but by the imperatives of the incumbency machine. It is, I think, clear that when you put 
something on the ballot saying California, a dedicated tax for transportation, it passes in the state that gave us the tax revolt in the first place in uh, 14 Junes ago with Proposition 13. So it does seem to me clear that, that you can argue that public spending today is too high a percentage of GNP. You can argue that it's too low a percentage of GNP. You can even argue that it's just right. No one can argue that the pattern of public spending is defensible because it makes sense only in terms of the imperatives of career legislators. Now, to be a, a legislator today is to be perhaps the most pure entrepreneur left in the United States. You find a market, it's called a congressional district, and you, you discern a market niche, which is 51% of the voters who would like your product. You acquire some venture capitalists, they're called campaign contributions, and you merchandise yourself through advertising. And at the end of it, the return on the investment to the venture capitalists is what's called access. And it can be honey subsidies, it can be lots of things, but that's how it works. I would uh, hasten to say that term limits are not going to put an end to all that bothers all of us about contemporary government. It's not a silver bullet, there is no such thing. The modern state is the problem with its myriad subsidizing and regulating activities, its inexhaustible ways to influence the allocation of wealth and opportunity. We are not going to make something straight from the crooked timber of American humanity. And term limits can only, as I say, improve the aptitude and tendency of our government. But it is, I think, far from being a starry-eyed and unconservative approach to constitutional reform. It is a Madisonian accommodation, both to human nature and to the nature of the modern state. It is a way of altering the incentives for entry into and for behavior while in public life. It's an old axiom of our political life that some people want to be politicians to do something and some people want to be politicians to be something. These are people who want to be career legislators. I sat yesterday, three days ago, next to the valedictorian of Walt Whitman High School in uh, Bethesda, a young girl, painfully bright and headed, of course, for the University of Chicago. And I said, what do you want to be? She said, I want Connie Morella's congressional seat. <laughs> She's 17 years old. An alternative reform, by the way, that came to mind talking to her was we could simply raise the age at which you could come to Congress to 45, for example. I'm dead serious. Then you would have something to come back to. You'd have to have a career of some sort. And that would be very useful. We wouldn't have the McGovern problem. I, I refer to the fact that you know, when George McGovern left the Senate after three terms, among the activities he took up, he founded a hotel with a restaurant in it in Connecticut, and it went bankrupt. You know, disgrace attaches to that. Most new small businesses fail. But what was interesting was his exclamation of agony. He said, no one told me about the government paperwork involved in all this. <laughs> Well, no one would have had to tell him if he'd ever been out there in the private sector. See, the, the theme of term limits, by the way, isn't that any cook can run the state. Not every cook can. The theme is, however, that there are more than 535 people in any generation that can run the Congress. And that if they can't run this kind of state, then there's something radically wrong with this kind of state that we have.
and I would have us institutionalize rotation in office. I'd have it just do it to restore some contact with the impulses and values of classical republicanism. I would do it to make more probable to increase the government's aptitude and tendency for genuinely deliberative democracy rather than the mere responding to opinion as it wells up in its various ways. And most of all, I'd, I'd do it to restore the fun and goodwill and good humor of politics in Washington. Back in studio with uh, Jonah Goldberg, AEI fellow, editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, and uh, about six drinks in now, <laughs> so the answer should get uh, more, more lucid and informative, uh, hopefully. Uh, but in all seriousness... Uh, I, what I, wasn't serious about that? I, <laughs> I wanted to uh, float a, a theory here um, that gets to that uh, dichotomy I, I mentioned earlier of uh, registering greater uh, democratic sentiment, right? What what uh, George Will dismissively called. Uh, a more accurate seismograph to register every democratic tremor mm-hmm. uh, and government being generally more responsive uh, to the people and democracy as uh, a higher, if not the highest good in American political life mm-hmm. uh, and republicanism by which the uh, the will of the majority is filtered through counter majoritarian institutions um, protecting the rights of minorities um, and just generally trying to calm the passions of of the demos uh, and, and here's the here's the theory it's a theory of political history the two major political parties that we know today the Democrats and the Republicans are precisely what their names imply which is to say that Republicans the only thing keeping Republicans uh, consistent from Lincoln to the present uh, is a, a an unwavering insistence that uh, the United States is meant to be more Republican than it is Democratic um, that the the will of the of the majority is not the be-all and end-all of American government what keeps the Democratic Party together is uh, what we might call populism um, they have traditionally been a more populist party from Andrew Jackson uh, through the progressive era and to Occupy Wall Street, uh, and that the Democratic Party traditionally has been held together by the notion that uh, democracy is what we are after and the will of the majority is uh, the highest political good. Am I way off? What do you What do you make of this well, I, 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 wild theory? If, I, if nothing else, it, it might make a provocative Wall Street Journal article. <laughs> um, I don't think they want me anymore. Um, I I'm not for you. Um, uh, I don't want to be. You know. I mean. I, oh, if, if 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 we're supposed to be trying to conjure the same spirit of righteous indignation that I got from from George, then I'm I'm here for you because I completely disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> um, First of all, I don't think that it is true. Uh, where to begin? All right, so first of all, you should have a talk with our friend and colleague Adam White about this Republican thing. Um, small r Republican. Sure. At the time of the founding, my understanding is, is that the word Republican did not have this sort of 
diffusing and holding at bay the demos meaning to it. It just meant a democratic form of government. And, um, and so Republican in, in, at the time was a way to signal that you weren't a monarchist, which was not a democratic form of government. And so the way we talk about democratic today is the way they talked Republican 250 years ago or so. And, um, and I understand and I like investing the meaning that you're using into the word Republican, mm -hmm. but I don't think that historically at the time that's what it, it comes from. This is something that I vent about a lot is it is amazing to me how we really don't even have the vocabulary to describe the sort of the sort of Burkean orientation that you're talking about during the impeachment saga. It was amazing to me to listen to all of these people defending President Trump, and I'm not talking about what he actually did or any of that kind of stuff, just with this rhetoric about this would be overturning the will of the people, this would be overturning 63 million votes, yada, yada, yada. Well, first of all, Donald Trump lost the popular vote. So appeals to Democratic will, small d Democratic will, are ill-suited to defending a president um, in an impeachment struggle. And, you know, because Hillary Clinton got 66 million votes and Donald Trump got 63 million votes. That doesn't bother me because I like the Electoral College, which has this small R Republican in the sense that you mean it function, right? Um, but we don't have a good vocabulary to talk about how, I mean, people started using things like legitimately elected or duly elected, but that is just kind of a Band-Aid, rhetor that's, rhetorically, that's kind of a Band-Aid that people hear, oh, that must mean having democratic authority or democratic legitimacy, when in fact, under strict notions of democracy, which I do not adhere to, um, Donald Trump has no democratic authority or democratic legitimacy because he lost the popular vote. Again, that doesn't bother me because I like the electoral college. He has constitutional authority. He has constitutional authority, which is all that matters, right? But, okay, so there's that. Then there's the larger problem, or maybe smaller problem with your theory, insofar as um, um, the Democratic Party at, let me put it this way, the Republican Party at the time of its founding was more democratic than the Democratic Party because it had actually said that black people should not be slaves and then should be treated as citizens. And Is that democratic or is that uh, a repudiation of the doctrine of popular sovereignty, that, that uh, states should be free to decide by... By their majority, they'd say no. Certain rights are beyond the okay. That's fair. Democracy. That's fair. Um, and I think you're probably right to frame it that way about the time of slavery. At the same time, um, it is not obvious to me that uh, when the what, let's say liberals, right, as represented by the Democratic Party, um, were all gung ho about. Uh, judicial activism by the Supreme Court that they were enamored with democracy. They didn't like the right, tax right. revolts of the 1970s in California. They very much liked the administrative state, which they created in the progressive era. And 
I recently had on my podcast uh, Mark Whittington, your uh, thesis advisor? Keith Whittington. Keith Whittington, yes, sorry, yeah. Yes, he was my thesis advisor. He didn't and, like my thesis that much, though. And he was making the case that um, we tend to have, uh, that our political elites tend to defend the institutions that are most effectively aligned with their political agendas. And so I think you could go back and make, and, and point to times where the Democratic Party happened to be very democratic with a small d and point to other times where it is not and vice versa with the Republican Party um, where, I mean, right now we live in a moment where the Republican Party is very populist, not very, you know, elite, Burkean, let's have a cooling saucer kind of argument in any way. All right, I should just add, because from our previous conversation and also now, as much as I wanted to democratize the house i would be very happy to get rid of the direct the direct knew, election of senators yes that's, right that's the trade i think that that's fair yeah expand the size of the house repeal the 17th amendment yep i'm all in favor all in favor of it. okay did i cut you off no 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 no. that's fine we can keep going but you know oh, i want to shift gears though. sure shift the gears if, if there are any lingering thoughts speak now Nope, nope, okay. it's all right. I, all right, here. It's here not like I lack for opportunities to express my views. <laughs> on, on this podcast with, with That's this true. audience? That's true. That's true. Uh, we're, we're huge in Manitoba. Uh, I, I want to shift to talking about the arenas in which we conduct politics. Uh-huh. And I expressed to uh, my boss and your nemesis, Adam White, uh-huh. uh, on his podcast, Unprecedental, which uh, all our listeners should should tune into. It's, it's very good. Uh that I am torn uh-huh. between encouraging people to do something that I think you've generally uh, advocated for in the past, which is stop paying so much attention to politics, return to the things in your life that are meaningful. Right? The I, I expressed it in Old Testament terms, mm-hmm. as I want to do. Return to your tents, mm-hmm. right? Go back to your families and your and your recreational societies and the and your religion and the things that make your life uh, rich meaningful and fulfilling mm-hmm. uh, and there and politics can cool that way and our republic can return to uh, a, a place in which politics is is relegated to its proper scope uh, and importance and that would that would be very nice and I, I, I am very sympathetic to that however uh, the ways in which politics are wielded and precedent is wielded at any given time in history depends upon the way history is written at the time. Mm-hmm. And contrary to the position that history is strictly written by the victors, there are enormous uh, numbers of, of moments, constitutional moments, historical moments that you don't necessarily realize you're living through, uh, but will be immensely important to future generations. Impeachment is one of those things that keeps coming up in these Mm -hmm. discussions because the way future generations will talk about impeachment, the the recent impeachment and impeachments generally, depends on the the way we as the public, not just the, the chattering class or law professors or congressmen, talk about this impeachment. So it's actually, on this view, it is important to register your understanding of a given constitutional or political moment. And we should actually be encouraging regular citizens to be more involved and more invested 
in thinking about and talking about uh, Republican citizenship and and what we what lessons we want uh, future generations to learn from our time. And this is really bugging me, and I'm hoping that you can help me uh, sort this out. Um, I'm not sure that I can. Um, I mean, it sounds to me that in part what you're talking about is that for history to get an adequate picture, or an adequate picture, but the correct picture, right, um, that citizens need to, in effect, offer the citizenry's equivalent of a presidential signing statement where they declare to the world the way these events or acts were perceived by normal people, right? Okay. Um, I, th- I was thinking of it more in terms of registering our amicus briefs. Okay. For the for the courts of opinion of the future. Yeah. I, look, I mean, uh, impeachment is a hard one because that's a big deal, right? My problem is less to do with treating big deals as big deals than treating trivialities as big deals, and I think that's one of the problems with our politics today is we have lost the ability to argue that something isn't the biggest deal in the world. And when you do that, you render, you know, on the one hand, you render lots of minor things into major catastrophes, but you also turn major catastrophes into minor things. And both of those things are bad. And I don't have a great answer for it, but I do think, again, Going back to Yuval, I mean, this is something I've been talking about for a very long time, that if you had healthier local communities, the things that would register as, quote-unquote, federal issues would be fewer and more far between. Um, One of my favorite metaphors that always comes to mind is there's a... There was a study or a scientific paper when I was in college that came out that settled something that everybody knew was true, but no one knew why, which was why very large rocks rise to the top of fields. Um, They're very heavy. Why would they come to the, why would they just emerge at the top of a field where they hadn't been for decades? And it's very similar. It's, it's a, it goes to the science of sorting. It's very similar to why when you buy a box of cereal, the largest cornflakes are at the top and all the tiny ones are at the bottom. And it's because if you can think about how vibrations work, it would make sense if, so vibrations form these little tiny spaces between the rock and the soil. Well, the little tiny spaces are gonna be big enough for small things to fall down, but not big things. So over time, the small things all fall to the bottom and they push the big things up. And um, that's how politics should work in a, vast continental nation where almost everything should be settled. If it can be settled at the local level, that's where it should be settled. We shouldn't have the federal government intervening, and social media makes all of this work worse, where we pick local bad examples of bad things, and in the spirit of bad cases making for bad law, or hard cases making for bad law, we extrapolate from them federal consequences, national consequences. And the more we can have local communities dealing with political problems, um, the more you get buy-in at the local level, 
And the more you get the stuff that the federal government taking up really mattering. Slavery had to be a federal issue because at the end of the day, the question of who is a human being and who is not is something that you cannot have competing jurisdictions over. It's one of the reasons why I think the pro-lifers have a very strong case about abortion is that at the end of the day, it is difficult to do that too. I think we could have had it if Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, I shouldn't say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but her, the- her this is partly her theory, if the Supreme Court hadn't short-circuited that democratic process, maybe we wouldn't have thought about abortion in this who's a human being and who's not terms, but that's where we are now, and that's why I don't think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a real heavy lift to make it a federal, a federalist issue, a local issue. Um, Even though I think it's, I just, this is uh, off track a little bit. Even uh, though that the the current popular conservative position is we just want to kick it to the states where it belongs. You don't, you don't think that's sufficient? I could live. I think, I think conservatives would accept that as a as a compromise, certainly. And, oh, I, I certainly think a lot of conservatives would accept it. And yeah. I think a lot of pro-lifer, professional pro-lifer people, I don't mean in, in a disparaging way, I mean committed pro-life people see that as a huge victory on a march towards total victory. Mm-hmm. In much the same way that liberals see or that pro-choice activists want abortion on demand without apology from conception. Right, but they'll they'll make incremental uh, Yeah, so I mean the, the, there are those trade-offs and the 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 reason why abortion is such a complicated issue in America today is that and this is a point our friend Ramesh Panuru makes is if you talk to a European and they say, "Oh, you guys are so obsessed with abortion, why do you make such a big deal out of it?" And then you point out to them that under existing Supreme Court jurisprudence, Roe and Doe and all these other things, Casey, it is at least constitutional to abort a baby in the third trimester, minutes before birth. And Europeans will say, oh, my God, that's barbaric. Um, They don't realize that we have one of the most aggressively uh, uh, pro-abortion regimes in the world. And... Um, and that most compromises would actually, mo- most rest- quote unquote restrictions on abortion rights would get us much more in line with, say, France or Sweden than where we are right now. But that's, a, again, this is a digression, which we should not go too deep in. That's okay. We, we can talk about everything on this podcast. I've got one last uh, sort of big picture observation to make, which is uh, Hit me. that uh, George Will, from the time that he gave this lecture and you you questioned him, uh, ha- has gone through something of an evolution in his thinking. He, he is not uh, precisely the same as uh, statecraft, as soulcraft, yes. George Will. And some have accused him of taking a more libertarian line. Um, I, I think his uh, view of judicial engagement or activism is relatively new or has uh, developed towards the, the later stages of, of his career. And uh, many people have said the same uh, about you, mm-hmm. that that you have uh, evolved in certain ways, um, maybe uh, just w- with the Obama era in, in hindsight, or maybe with the, uh, the party shifting around you. And I know you've said uh, many times that you feel uh, politically homeless 
but more rooted in your principles than ever before. Yeah. So uh, what do you see as the major, maybe this is just an obvious answer, um, but maybe there's something more to it that you've been just dying to express. The major uh, transformations of conservative politics that have left you and George Will in places that you probably never thought you would be relative to the rest of the right. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, I don't think I'm alone, you know, or it, I don't think it's just me and George left. No, there's but, also the whole second floor here. At yeah, but it's, it's a remnant. I mean, there's a reason why my podcast is called The Remnant. Um, I think that one of the things, I think that one of the things that, um, I can't speak to George's evolution. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for George and his ability to um, turn his considerable intellect on his own previous positions, which I think is a admirable thing. It's actually something he does within this very lecture as he goes yeah. back on on something uh, that he, he didn't give the founders enough credit for. But Yeah, no, uh, his his original column for the Washington Post on... Um, term limits, I remember when they debated it on Crossfire, were, began with the words, I have changed my mind. And uh, shows you how old I am. And um, so in my, for, for me, I've never liked populism. I've been writing against populism since I've been writing, essentially. Um, but I had, I would say that one of the things I failed to appreciate and this is one of the reasons, I, one of these days I'm going to do a big liberal fascism reconsidered because I would write that book differently today. And one of the things that I underestimated was how much conservatives were actually locked into some of their dogmatic positions. And I use, as, as since you've actually read uh, Tyranny Clichés, I use dogma in a positive way. I think that the way we talk about dogma in our culture is entirely misguided. Um, it's the Blaine Amendments of language. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like that. Um, Thank you. Feel free to use it. The, you know, um, people who say they're against dogma almost invariably mean dogma they don't like. But dogma actually comes from the Greek. It means that which seems good, that which you take for granted just as a given, Right. I don't want to know people who aren't dogmatically opposed to pedophilia or kiddie porn, right? I mean, it's just, I don't need to debate it. We don't need to revisit some of these questions. I don't want to know or debate people who don't, as a matter of fundamental dogma, consider the Holocaust a bad thing. And um, one of the problems we have in our, our society is the way in which we think it is the height of intellectual and moral courage to question dogma. Sometimes, but this gets back to my analogy with the rocks in the field. Sometimes dogma is bad. Slavery was a bad bit of dogma. The, the truly bad bit of, bits of dogma, they build up like, you know, I, this sounds too favorable, but sort of like the, the, the pearl and the oyster. The irritants build around it until it gets so big that it has to be taken out. The bad dogma like slavery, like second-class citizenship for women, all of these kinds of things, eventually they become irreconcilable with the best version of ourselves and the best version of our civilization, and eventually they have to be cleared from the field. And um, 
But this, I mean, this is a bit of a uh, cul-de-sac here. The thing that got me started on dogma was just simply that I took it for granted that most conservatives really believed their dogma about limited government, their dogma about federalism, their dogma about not wanting an imperial president, um, their dogma most essentially about good character being very important. And um, and it turns out for reasons like I, there, one of my great fixations is, is, is pointing out to people that there is a profound difference between an explanation and an excuse. I understand most of the explanations about why the right has fallen in line with Trump, why they now embrace Trump, while they why they have shaved down the measure the yardstick of their measurements to fit the man rather than hold him accountable to the actual length of the measurement. I understand why. I understand why Obama got them very angry, why things in our culture make them very angry. I get all of that. Very few of those things are excuses. And um, the ability of many on the right to rationalize away positions that they've invested their careers in took me very much off guard. The other thing which we don't need to get deep in the weeds on is that I've also changed in a pretty dramatic way my view about how ideology and intellectual history works. And that I often think that, I, I used to think that ideology was more of the leading indicator, and sometimes it is, for sure, and I think intellectual history is important, and ideas are important. I wouldn't be at AI if I didn't. But often, ideas are lagging indicators, and in that we bend the ideas to fit our interests or our immediate desires or our political agendas, and more the right's capacity to do a lot of that was greater than I had appreciated and ultimately quite dismaying. Jonah Goldberg, this has been a thrill. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. And thank you to the Bradley people. The Bradley lectures were awesome. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do... Please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.